Uh, just a reminder, our March for Missions offering on December 18th is taken up to support state offerings through the Mary Hill Davis offering with Texas Baptists, the North American uh, Mission Board, so NAM and the Annie Armstrong offering, and then the International Mission Board, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Those together, we're, we are having a goal of $200,000. So we're encouraging you to give generously and cheerfully so that the gospel can go forward throughout the state of Texas and through North America and to the ends of the earth. Supporting missionaries, supporting the gospel going forth, supporting church plants uh, so that people can hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, good morning, and please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, if you will. We'll be getting a series here through our Advent, through Luke's birth narratives. Before we get started, I just want to say thank you to a handful of people as Ken Hansen, Ken name Hansen, were away in Europe on a vacation. Uh, several of our students decorate our church, so thank you to people like Brianna Norman and Sarah Hope and Chris and Anthony Barbaro and Jackson McLaughlin who came and who gave up their time and served and the room looks great, right? <laughs> Luke chapter one this morning. Not many of you know the name Clive Staples Lewis, but all of you are familiar with the name C.S. Lewis, right? The British author is known for numerous volumes amongst the most love of his books are his fiction, fiction works, the Chronicles of Narnia. And you recall that in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Narnia is cursed. The White Witch has brought this curse on the land and it's always winter, but it's never Christmas. It's a terrible curse. And it's a curse that we learn has gone on for so long. And it seems like Aslan, who is the mighty lion, has been absent. No one has seen from him or heard from him. But things are changing now. Things would soon break. Lucy and Edmund and Susan and Peter, they stumble into this world. And more importantly, it's Aslan, right? The powerful lion whose return is setting into motion change. Everything's going to melt. Aslan is on the move. Now the Old Testament closes with the prophecy of Malachi in chapter 4 and verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Behold, the great and, uh, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Right? So the Old Testament this period closes with this word from Malachi that God is going to send this prophet and something is going to change, but so much time has passed. It's been so long. The people have this expectation, but the time has grown long. Weeks have become months and months, years and decades, generations, and now 400 years and no prophetic word from God. No vision from God. Has he forgotten us? The people wondered. Has he forgotten us? Is he going to be faithful to his promise? Is he going to be faithful to, to what he said? That a, a son of David would reign on the throne of the kingdom forever and ever? Are we still going to be under the oppression of Rome? See, the beginning of Luke's gospel tells us that God is on the move. 
that things are going to change, that things are going to brighten, they're going to get lighter, things are going to happen. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2, the prophet spoke years and years before this, hundreds of years before this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. And oftentimes we show this or we read this in association with Jesus, the Messiah. But friends, the coming of the king actually begins not with Jesus, but with the forerunner of Jesus, the man whom we know, know as John the Baptist. So that's where we are this morning. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. If you will, please stand as we honor the reading of God's word together. Luke 1, beginning of verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and let the disobedient and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for these moments together. Lord, thank you for this church family. Thank you that by the power and the grace of our God, you have called us out of darkness and into light, into the light of Christ. And Lord, over the next several weeks, as we look to the coming of the King, in these birth narratives that Luke records for us, we pray that we would see Jesus, that we would behold Jesus, the humble servant king who died to make the way to reconciliation with you, God. And we pray that we, in turn, would humble ourselves and, and turn to him with our hearts, Lord, and expect that he will come again to rule and to reign with all glory. For now, do this in our own hearts, Lord. May we follow you with everything we have and everything we are. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. 
Well, in verse 5, we see here that Luke places the coming of the king, King Jesus, in the context of another king, King Herod. King Herod here is Herod the Great. He was the Roman ruler for the area of, of Jerusalem, of Judea, and Samaria, and Syria from 37 to 4 BC. And like so many of these kings, Herod had an exalted view of himself Yet he was merely a puppet of Rome, ultimately. His abuse of power, the way that he managed Jerusalem and the temple and the priesthood for his own gain brought him no love from the people that he was ruling over. Now this was a time of oppression. The people of Israel for so many hundreds of years had been living under oppression, the oppression of other kings. They were not a nation to themselves, but they were accountable to other people. And so many of them were helpless. So many of them had so little means. Poverty was so prevalent among the people of God at this time. And they all longed for the salvation that only God could bring. The salvation that God promised to bring through a Messiah, through an anointed one, one who would be a son of David. And in verses 5 through 7, Luke introduces to us a priest named Zechariah and his wife, whose name is Elizabeth. They were both descendants of Aaron, we see here. They were faithful Jews and they feared the Lord. This is the description that we have of them. Now, Luke describes them as blameless, and this doesn't mean that they were, they were sinless, that they had never sinned. It just means that when they sinned, they lived and acted according to law to make sure that they were connected rightly to the one true and living God as best as the law could bring about. He's telling us that they took seriously the word of God. He's telling us that they feared the one true and living God. And then in verse seven, we learn something that is a surprise to us. All the people of the day would have seen this as a surprise because they recognized that Zechariah and Elizabeth were God-fearing people, that they loved the Lord. And all the first readers and those who would come afterwards would have said, wait a minute, she was barren? They had no children? See, to be barren at this time was seen as a curse of God. It was as a reproach and a disgrace. This would have brought great shame upon them. But despite their childless state, they kept seeking the Lord. They kept pursuing him. They kept following his will. They kept obeying him as best they could. And in verses 8 through 10, we learn that Zechariah was set to engage in his priestly duties. His priestly activities. Now at the time, there were thousands of priests who lived in that area of Judah. Of Judea. So all these priests and not enough work to do, so they worked on a rotation. You guys know the National Guard, right? If you sign up for the National Guard, you have different stints where you go and you actually engage in National Guard duties. And that's kind of what this is here. So for two weeks a year, these priests were assigned to one week of, of duty t attending to the temple there. And they would all go and by lot, they would be given a, a job. They would have a specific job. And the lot just so happened to fall upon, but it wasn't chance, it was God at work, just so happened to fall upon Zechariah to go into the temple, into the holy place, just outside the holy of holies where only the high priest could go, only separated by a curtain, where he would go and he would burn incense and others would pray and they would seek the Lord. 
This was an honor. This was a huge privilege and a huge honor because there were priests who would never even be given this honor in their entire life. The lot would not fall on them. In fact, the priests who, who did get this honor would only be able to do it one time in their life. So we might say this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for him to have this job at this time and in this way. And friends, what Luke wants us to know is that this didn't just happen by chance. God was at work. God is on the move. And the casting of lots here tells us that God's will is being accomplished. And the first thing I want us to see this morning is this. God answers the prayers of his people according to his will. God answers the prayers of his people according to to his will. So Luke is doing his priestly duties, and then an angel appears in the room. And as we see throughout Scripture, what is so common is that when an angel of God appears, terror falls upon the people who are in the presence of this angel. Like, this is a scary thing. Like, there is something about the presence of the angel of God who is coming, and there is fear, there is terror, and that's what we see here with. Zechariah in the sight of this angelic being. But the angel reassures Zechariah and tells him that his prayer has been answered. Now immediately this begs a question, doesn't it? Well, what's the prayer? What prayer was Zechariah praying right then so that the angel would say, hey, listen, God's heard your prayer and he's answered your prayer. Well, some believe that the prayer was for a child. Right? The pain of being childless was so overwhelming for, for Elizabeth and for Zechariah in this culture that they argue Zechariah was pleading for God to do something, to change something, give conception to Elizabeth, allow them to have a child. However, others suggest that based on Zechariah's response of disbelief that we'll get to later on, and likely the fact that they were advanced in years, that this probably wasn't even on Zechariah's radar at this time. So then they think, well, Zechariah was likely praying for the salvation of Israel. He was likely praying that God would bring about some kind of movement where Israel would be saved, freed from oppression, that God would be true to his promises, that God would be true to the covenant that he made with the forefathers and with, with David. In fact, the people, Luke tells us that there are people outside and they were praying, and this is likely what they were praying, for the redemption of God's people. Now, friends, it wouldn't surprise me if Gabriel, when he said, God has heard your prayer, he's responding to a lot of different prayers that Zechariah had prayed over the years. Do you think Zechariah and Elizabeth had prayed for a son or for a daughter at some point in their lives? Yeah, very likely. But they were advanced in years. Maybe this wasn't even ready. But they were praying for the salvation of Israel. They were praying for the redemption of Israel. That they would have their own nation. That God would be true to his promises. So the angel appears and says, look, your wife's going to conceive and have a son. And it won't be just any son. The Spirit of God is going to come upon your son, in the womb even, and he's going to be great before God, and, and he's not going to be like everyone else. In fact, he can't be like everyone else. He can't have wine. He can't have strong drink. Likely here a reference to a Nazarite vow. Their prohibition against wine and strong drink was associated with priests doing their priestly duties in the Old Testament, Leviticus 10, and times of special consecration, 
such as the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6. Kings 2 were also advised against drinking strong drink and wine. As Joel Green points out, since this wasn't the norm, the prohibition here, it required explanation, and that's what the angel is doing there in verses 16 and 17, right? Look, there's something different about this son of yours. Let's look at verses 16 and 17 again. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, to, their, to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. In other words, the angel is saying, you're going to have a son and there's something different about this son. He is going to be the fulfillment of prophecy. And he has a job to do. And it's an important job. Now the allusions to the spirit and the power of Elijah point us back to the prophecy in Malachi that we read earlier. That John would go before the Lord points us to Isaiah in chapter 40 and to Malachi in chapter 3. Let me read for you in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her welfare is ended, her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together from the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see what the angel is saying to Zechariah? Hey, you're going to have a son. And this son has a special role. This son is going to come and he's going he's to prepare the way of the Lord. He's going to come in the spirit of Elijah and he's going to speak truth and he's going to give comfort to the people because he is going to say that, that God is on the move, that God is attending to your needs. And there is one who is coming, who he is the forerunner of, who is going to make all things new. It's this one, Jesus. Malachi in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Yeah, Zechariah, this is big news. Elizabeth's going to conceive in her old age, even though she's barren, she's going to conceive and you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him John, and he has a special role. He's going to prepare the way of the Lord. He's going to befo go before the Messiah. He's going before the anointed one. He's going before the king, the one who is the prince of peace. So how does John the Baptist prepare the way? Well, the answer, the angel tells Luke, is by calling people to repent, by calling them to turn to the Lord their God, verse 16. Hear this. God answers the prayers for a son, Zechariah and Elizabeth. He answers the prayers for a child, and he begins to answer the prayers for Israel's salvation through John. God answers the prayers of his people according to the will. 
John, the one who prepares the way of the Messiah, Jesus, by calling people to repentance and live according to the ways of God. Friends, that's a turning. That's what the turning of the fathers to the children, the children to the fathers is all about. It's a symbol of living in covenant with God. It's a picture of living according to the will of God and to the ways of God. Now hear this, God hears the prayers of the righteous. And we know from James in chapter five that he, the prayers of the righteous accomplish much. And we need to know this, friends, that as we pray in faith from a life that is seeking God, God hears our prayers and answers them according to his will or answers them as a means to accomplish his will. God, can you please, can we just, can we have a baby? God, would you please allow us to have a child? God, would you please save Israel? Would you please bring, uh, please bring salvation to your people? God, would you please do these things? And our heart's cry is together, and God moves in mysterious ways, and God answers the prayers of his people and it's for his glory. And it's for his kingdom. And if we have eyes to see, friends, and we ought to be looking, how are the prayers that God answers in our lives meant to further God's will in our world? How does the way that God answers my prayer actually correspond to a greater purpose in life for what he has for me or for my family or for our church or for our city or for his kingdom, right? When you get that new job, is it just about the job or is there something greater that God has in mind? When he heals you from that sickness, is it just about your immediate healing, your physical health? Or, or what else is he doing? Why? What's behind that? Or he helps you pass that test. Is it just to pass the test? What does God have for you in life? What is he wanting to do in life? How is he moving you? We should look beyond the immediate answer to the bigger answer, what is God doing and how can I be involved with what is God doing? How is he involving me with what he is doing? How does God want me to honor him and glorify him? Why did God grant me this? Or why didn't God grant me that? And what is he doing, what does he desire for me instead so that I can move his purposes along so I could live more fully according to his will even in an answer that is not exactly what we were looking for friends God answers the prayer of his people according to his will but secondly we should rejoice in the peace that comes only through the Lord rejoice in the peace that comes only through the Lord in verse 14, the angel tells Zechariah that not only will he have joy and gladness, but that many will rejoice at John's birth. Now, of course, parents are always excited when they have a baby, right? Grandparents are really excited when the parents have a baby, right? And, and all the friends, all the family, they're excited, but, but here it's many will rejoice. Who are the many? And what are they rejoicing about? Well, they're rejoicing because God is on the move, because God is bringing about a a plan of redemption. 
And it's all starting because the King, King Jesus, is coming. The rejoicing wouldn't be just the immediate reaction to the baby, but the rejoicing would be because God was at work. That God was bringing peace. And it is John who is announcing the Prince of Peace. Now fast forward to his ministry, right? And when you think of John's ministry, you might think of his ending when he was beheaded, or you might think of his ministry there at the, at the Jordan River. When he was baptizing people, calling in to repent and to turn to the Lord. And you recall there were multitudes of people who were going out there and they were rejoicing. They were rejoicing because God was at work, but there were also some who were scoffing at him. And they were questioning his authority. They didn't like what he had to say because those people, the religious leaders, liked the authority and the power that they had. So John was kind of pressing against them as he called them to turn their hearts and their eyes to the Lord. But there was rejoicing because God was on the move, because God was at work. And John here was playing a unique role in history as the last of the Old Testament prophets who was now speaking and pointing people and preparing the way of the Lord Jesus. And this is instructed for us because the Apostle Paul is telling us to rejoice always. And again, we say rejoice. People rejoice, why? Well, not because of the suffering, not because of the difficulty. And the people there, they were suffering and they were oppressed. But they were rejoicing because God was at work, because God was at the move. So even in our own lives, friends, we're called to rejoice. But we are rejoicing from the standpoint of those who have been graced by God. We're rejoicing from the standpoint of those who have experienced the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? The peace that we have because of the mercy of God, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Christ, because God fulfills his promises and because of the restoration that is found in him. But third, we're to believe God's word. Let's look at verses 18 through the end, uh, through verse 25. And Zechariah said to the angel, well, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done to me in the day when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among the people. How can this be? So here's Zechariah. He's he's afraid of this angel that's next to him. How can this be? I mean, I'm old. My wife's old. We haven't been able to have a baby. How is this going to happen? Can you hear the disbelief in his voice? And Gabriel responds, and he's kind of asserting his authority. I am Gabriel. I come from the presence of God, and he has sent me here to tell you this good news. Now, some of you will remember this. Years ago, about 12 years ago, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, 
uh, Todd Blackhurst, we were preaching through birth narratives and Todd Blackhurst was preaching that morning and he used this illustration. He said, he said, I am Gabriel. It's not like this was Lenny who worked in the back room, right? The receiving office. This is actually Gabriel in the moment and he's speaking. He is coming from the presence of God. This is the same angel who appeared to Daniel to give Daniel wisdom and assurance in Daniel chapter eight and chapter nine. This is Gabriel who would speak to Mary, very likely the same one who spoke to Joseph to tell of the birth of Jesus. Here's the point. When God speaks something, we should believe it. When God says something, we should believe it. When God promises something, we should believe it. Even when we can't fully understand it. And even when it seems like there are obstacles that would prevent it. Even when it doesn't make sense to us, if God said it, we believe it. So where does God speak it? He speaks it to us in his word. Probably none of us in this room have ever had Gabriel come appear to us and tell us something straight from the presence of God. But all of us in this room have something straight from the presence of God. Because God's word speaks to us today. Because God's word is instructive for us today. And we are called to listen and believe God's word today. Popular song by a group called Maverick City. God keeps his promises. If he said it, we believe it. We have this confidence that you'll finish what you've started. You've never failed, and you're not going to start with me. A word of caution, though, friends. When we're talking about believing God's word, we have to rightly understand God's word. We can't just take something from God's word and take it out of context and twist it to make it say whatever we want it to say. For example, Second. Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, a passage you're familiar with. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. This is a promise. It's a promise to the old covenant people. It's a promise to Israel back in the day. Too often we want to take this promise to a specific people at a specific time who are under a theocracy and apply it to America today and say, hey, if we'll just do this, then everything's going to be fine. Well, we ought to humble ourselves and we ought to turn from our sins and we ought to turn our eyes to him. But the promise isn't for America. The promise was for Israel under the old covenant and that's not us today. Yes, there are principles that may abide, but this is not our promise. Same could be said when it comes to many of the promises made to the patriarchs in the Old Testament, right? And they're taken out of context today, and then we arrive at what is called the prosperity gospel. That God only wants blessing for us, that God only wants to give us more land, that God only wants to increase our wealth, and where everything's going to go great. That God doesn't want any struggle, only abundant prosperity. We have to understand how the context changes everything. So we believe God's word and we understand it in the right context. And the importance of believing God's word is highlighted in the fact that God disciplined Zechariah. Like there's real discipline here. 
Zechariah is doubting God's word. He's doubting the promise made to him in the moment. And there is discipline. Because of this, because of your disbelief, you will be mute. You will be unable to speak. Some commentators believe that this could be both uh, unable to hear and unable to speak. Because one of the words could be used in both contexts. This is your punishment. This is your discipline in the moment. Until the baby is born, you won't be able to speak. So does God discipline us for our unbelief today? Yeah, I think so. Now, we don't know what that is specifically, but he disciplines us for our good. We know that. He disciplines us for our good that we might share in his righteousness He disciplines us for our good so that we might learn more of his character, so that we might know more who he is, and that we might be made more like him. What could that discipline look like? Well, it could look like a lack of awareness of God's presence. It could look like a lack of experience of peace in a situation because we don't believe that God is able, or we don't believe that God is good in the moment, or we question why he's doing something so we don't experience the peace, right? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. We don't go to the Lord in prayer. We don't seek him. We don't believe him. Perhaps it could be a sickness or a condition or sleeplessness or whatever it is. We don't know. We can't identify it clearly. We just know that we're called to believe what God says. And God will do things in our lives to get us to the point where we actually believe what he says. That's the big picture here, friends. Do we believe what God says or do we doubt what God says? Well, let's believe. And friends, if we're going to believe what he says, then we have to know what he says. This year, as we close out the year, let's know what he says. Let's know what he says. Let's know that he has promised a Messiah. He has promised a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus And that reconciliation with God comes only through faith in Jesus, the one who lived perfectly according to the will of God and who died on a cross to pay the sin debt of the world and then rose again on the third day. Let's believe that. And let's believe that if we individually put our hope and our trust in Jesus, then we will have forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life. And let's believe that he is coming again. And that he will make all things right in the end. And that those things that we suffer through now, sometimes we suffer through because of our own foolishness or our own sinfulness or the sinfulness of others. But God is still sovereign and he's still in control and he's still at work bringing us to a place where we are fully before him. Let's believe that. And let's live boldly our faith. Let's live boldly for his glory because we know he is always with us and he will not forsake us and that he's given us his spirit to encourage us and to empower us and to enable us to walk for his glory. Let's believe it. And how do we show that we believe it? We do it. We live it. We follow it. We seek him. Finally, Rest in God's loving kindness. So I want to read that last verse again, verse 24 and verse 25. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept hidden, saying, 
Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among God's people. Look, there is a contrast here between how the promise is received by Zechariah and by Elizabeth. Now, we don't see disbelief with Elizabeth and not exactly sure why she kept hidden or kept herself isolated for five months, but the attitude of her heart shows a confident and a humble trust in God. And we don't know exactly how Zechariah communicated everything that the angel Gabriel spoke to him, but we recognize that Elizabeth received the loving kindness of God in faith. What's clear is that Elizabeth understood this on a personal level. Yes, God's purposes were much bigger than just Zechariah and Elizabeth. But it included Zechariah and Elizabeth. I mean, his purposes were grand. It was the redemption of the world, right? All those who would trust in Christ. But it included Zechariah and Elizabeth. Notice what she says. Thus God has looked on me. He has taken away my reproach even in my old age. Elizabeth understands that God is being compassionate and gracious to her. And yeah, it's much bigger than her, but she sees God's blessing. She experiences God's blessing. She is resting here in God's loving kindness. And church, it is healthy for you and for us to rest in God's loving kindness. It is healthy. It is healthy to understand that God's love is not just for the world in general, but it is for you. That God loves you. When we embrace that, when we recognize that his love is for me, his love is for you, it changes us. It changes us. In his letter to the church at Galatia, Paul writes, you all know this verse, you probably have memorized, Galatians chapter two and verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God. Do you know the end? If you know it, say it. Who loved who? Me and what? Gave himself for You see what Paul's doing there? This isn't just about Paul. The son of God, God loved him and gave himself for him. It wasn't just about him. Who was it about? All the redeemed, right? God is dying to bring himself a people. He's purchasing a people. But Paul is personalizing it now, friend. And you should personalize it if you're in Christ. God loved you. And he died on a cross for you. And what difference does it make in your life? That the sovereign king of kings, that the Lord of lords, that the creator of the universe thought of you? Yes, he did. And he took on flesh for you? Yeah, for the whole, right? For all the redeemed, for all God's people. God so loved the world, but he did it for you. He died for you. Allow that to sink in. Allow that to encourage your heart. Allow that to motivate you to live more for the glory of the one true and living God. If you are in Christ, this is the hope we have. 
I mean, God knows you intimately. He knows the number of hairs on your head, your comings and your goings. You're a lot of time on the earth. He knows everything about you and Jesus died for you and he cares for you and he's near to you. And in the distress of life, he is not far. He is near. And he has and he will meet your needs. And he's proven his love on the cross. And no, you're not the center of the universe. Let's just make that clear. You're not the center of the universe. And everything doesn't revolve around what you like and don't like. And his plans have a far-reaching agenda. But that doesn't mean that he is not concerned about every detail of your life. Whatever the struggle, rest in God's loving kindness. How? How do we do that? How do we rest in God's loving kindness? Well, for those who are in Christ, we believe his word. We remind ourselves of his grace and his faithfulness. We reflect on his love in the cross. And we remind ourselves that he's with us. And that he's given us his spirit to help us to walk with him and to comfort us and to care for us. And if you're not in Christ today, recognize that you need a savior because of your rebellion against the one true and living God. Because you have missed the mark of his righteousness in the way that you talk, in the way that you think, in the actions that you do, you have have broken the law, God's law. And you have made yourself guilty before him. And the Bible says that God will pour out his judgment and his wrath on all those who are apart from faith in Christ and who are in their sin. So today, turn from sin and turn to Christ. Put your hope in Jesus, the one who lived perfectly and died a sinner's death and rose again. And find life and forgiveness in him in the King of Kings, in the Prince of Peace, who paid your sin debt and then rose again. Will you pray with me? Father, we've made much of the Advent season this morning, and it is a glorious time of the year when we recognize that Jesus came and took on flesh. Because when we consider Jesus' coming and his living perfectly and his dying on a cross for our sin and his rising again to life eternal, what we're remembering is that you are true to your word, that you keep your promises, and that you love sinners. So forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for our unbelief and help us to walk with you and and right now in this room we pray you do your great work lord we pray you do your great work of assuring those who are in christ and convicting those who are outside of christ that they would put their hope and their trust in him god do this great work for your glory for our good in jesus name amen church as we transition to a time of invitation and reflection I want to encourage you to stand and respond as God is moving. Whatever God is doing, if we can pray or answer questions, we're available. Would you sing along?